Today is uh, in Buddhist terms is a sala puja. Sala refers to just the constellation in the sky, and, uh, and puja means something like uh, um, lifting up with a sense of praise or veneration, gladdening, brightening, highlighting. So clearly, we're not really highlighting the constellation. But the, um, what occurred, or is held to have occurred at this particular time in uh, 5th century BC India, when the Buddha, the enlightened one, <clears throat> completed his walk from his place of enlightenment in Bodhagaya, walked for a, a few weeks uh, until he got to um, uh, Deer Park near Varanasi. Kurisi Patane, which is, means the place where the, the rishis, or the ishis, they descend, they, they get together. So it's a kind of a, a known uh, haunt of, uh, of sages. <laughs> and that's where he gave his, his, not his first talk, but the talk in which he most fully, confidently expressed the uh, gist of his teaching. Not just his realization, which he already expressed to somebody else, but what he felt you know, was his teaching you know, to, to other people. And this he gave to these five former colleagues who were ascetics, as he'd been, and uh, there's a strong inclination. In, in all religions, but in India particularly, uh, this ascetic ideal of uh, uh, restraining, restraining, restraining until you kind of actually begin to mortify the body in some way or another. Uh, and so, uh, through neglect, let the hair grow, let the nails grow, or direct um, fasting to the point of starvation, or various other things like standing on one leg till the other leg withers away and these kinds of practices which still go on in India and so the Buddha had been one of these and he, he felt this wasn't getting him anywhere he went off to practice on his own and found what's called the middle way and it was uh, uh, the epitome of it was it was quite natural uh, rather than forced whereas asceticism has kind of definitely got a viewpoint an attitude, a particular position, get out of the body, um, eliminate the body in some way, or chastise the body. Um, Buddha's middle way, his own awakening, arose not from any particular attitude or view, other than just openness to more like a natural condition. Uh, natural condition of sitting calmly, breathing in, breathing out. Nothing, no particular angle on that, apart from sense of appreciation and calming. And it was marked by a quality of pleasure, pleasant experience. <clears throat> a pleasure that was not sensory so much as, uh, you could say, emotional or psychological, calming the mind, soothing, easing, uh, and so that the mind became uh, more gentle, open, malleable, pliable, workable and then just actually rather than harsh or dogmatic or forceful something which he was able to sort of like gather uh, energy from the body breathing in and out uh, energy from a mind that wasn't strained or forced it was just in an open flexible state and finally this is the best basis because it doesn't have a particular angle, attitude. It's just 
this is what happens. We do breathe in and out. Uh, and we can be aware of it. And we can be aware of the natural rhythm of that, the flow of that. And if it steadies, the mind calms down, feels refreshed. Uh, and it's able, fit, called fit for work, fit for the task, fit for insight. Fit, it's properly, it's not constricted, not uh, pushed, it's uh, fulfilled. And so this uh, is criticised for this as being a bit too soft. Um, uh, but he, uh, he, he spoke with confidence. And there was this confidence, both in his manner and his presentation, that caused um, people to listen to him. Yeah. So these particularly these five uh, former colleagues, friends of his, or who'd rejected him, he went back to see them because you know, although they were, he felt they kind of hadn't had sort of deviated from something that was more natural. At least they were deeply, you know, deeply intent on spiritual realization, and so he felt a sense also of loyalty, perhaps. So he taught those first, and then he went up to see his family, his parents, that was his next aim. So touch the people who are closest to you first, um, out of a sense of gratitude and, and loyalty, I guess. And it's, uh, <clears throat> so this teaching, Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the sutta which sets in motion the wheel of truth. which is a, uh, itself an interesting image because it has a sense of something that progresses, it moves along, it goes somewhere, and yet it's also holistic, it's something that turns on its axis, as an inner stillness around which all these factors occur, the factors it then enumerates. Before he even enumerated them, as is often the case with the Buddha, he tried to talk to people where they were at, and maybe just address uh, an imbalance in what, where they were at. So you, when he talked to these uh, five ascetics, he pointed out, first of all, what they already understood was that sensory indulgence wasn't, was ignoble and not very, doesn't get you very far, which they already understood. And then he pointed the other way. He said also this sense of you know, severe asceticism, mortification, this also doesn't get you anywhere, and it's also painful. So, hmm. oh. said, you know, so avoiding these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the way of the middle, the Majjima. So it's quite a negotiated presentation, you know, in the sense of meeting the people, Starting with what they already knew, pointing out to the imbalance, and then pointing out to a, a middle between those two extremes. In this middle way. So, although this sutta is um, venerated for bringing the Four Noble Truths into the world, the truth of dukkha, uh, or, uh, suffering or trouble, stress, problem. Uh, its origin, its ceasing, its path, the Buddha didn't actually begin with that. He began with extremism. And what is this extremism? Basically, we get drunk on sensory pleasure, we tip over. And there's a sense of trying to fill ourselves. And the other extreme, we get uh, forceful in the opposite way. Having understood we can be indulgent, we then, which is like going to reverse gear and try to cut off all, all the senses, all sensory impingement, and so forth. So you go, and then this, this is this count reaction, reactivity. We adopt an attitude. And between these, we get drunk or intoxicated with pleasure, and then we get uh, um, hostile towards any form of pleasure. 
You see, both of these, you know, there's something being added to this, which is, of course, a, uh, a self, a self-view. Uh, though he didn't express that, but what is it that imbalances, causes this imbalance? Yeah. So we're right in the middle. And so he first of all taught the middle path rather than the Four Noble Truths. So this middle path, Samaditi, Samasankapa, and all the other. First of all, the word Samma, which is generally translated as right, has a sense of something that's completed or fulfilled, balanced, whole. So the Buddha is called a Samma Sambuddha. It means he's really filled it all out. There's nothing left, it's completed. Completed, enlightened, awakened. So this samadhi means a view that um, rather than adopting particular attitudes or positions, just acknowledges the uh, fact that there is such a thing as skillful actions which lead to skillful results, and unskillful actions which lead to unskillful results. So good and bad are not just value judgments, they are particular energies, inclinations, intentions that have results. So we have cause, effect. Second principle, um, and also that we're related to mother, father. So we, we are ourselves the result. And, you know, we are uh, in our own bodies and minds the result. And of course, we can create further results. And there are those, so this is the, the essence of this cause and effect principle, which uh, means you know, not really uh, kind of take a position other than to know that the positions of good and bad are to be understood and recognizing a certain responsibility to maintain awareness and balance within that. Samasankapa is cultivated through refraining from heart, from um, unkindly or unsympathetic, um, violent, brutal attitudes towards oneself or others, from harshness or indifference, anger, blaming towards oneself or others, and of course, indulgence, sensory indulgence oneself rather so veering avoiding those so and then but the whole theme of the eightfold path was it starts with just this seminal principle balance understanding skillful unskillful putting aside the unskillful cultivating the skillful and really getting a feeling for what those terms mean they have to be directly understood, sensed in oneself. And how do we know that? How do we know? Yeah. Because we can feel it in our hearts. We feel a sense of guilt, or regret, or uh, furtive. Uh, uh, you know, we don't want other people to see what we're doing, or we don't care about other people. Something doesn't include cause and effect, it doesn't include other people, other people's welfare. So, so well, this, this is what you, this is the wrong, unskillful, because it must lead to uh, conflict in oneself. Uh, you know, we do, we feel guilty or we have to keep distracting ourselves from what we're doing. It also causes conflict between ourselves and others. Uh, and then we get jealousy, uh, um, contempt, uh, despising other people, resentment, bitterness, violence, arguments and so forth. So what is it that keeps the, the, our world smooth, smoothly flowing? A sense of balance. <coughs> 
And this is then to be followed through with uh, thoughts, speech, actions, livelihood. Livelihood, then effort or application, energy, mindfulness, and collectedness, or all these qualities are then gathered together into a single, uh, into the mind. Skills of what we've accomplished, the uh, dross that we've skimmed off, the foolishness or distractedness, results of that gather. And you can sit in that and feel very contented and happy and steady. Strengthens and fortifies the mind. And so this is essentially this kind of that was what he laid down. And you know, I mean, often when people, as I did myself, touch into to uh, Buddhism, we like to meditate or find a system of mindfulness, which is now quite a um, mainstream activity, mindfulness. But we may not really recognize what leads up to that or what it gives the meditation and mindfulness their fullest fruition. Is this aspect of the Eightfold Path, the integration of the Eightfold Path, the principles of cooperation, mutuality, respect, non-extremism, non-doctrination, non-dogmatism, something that gives rise to happy, skillful states in oneself, fortunate relationships, and skillful abiding, peaceful abiding for other people. So it's a very fulfilled whole presentation. And if we don't really get that, uh, or, or fulfill that, then we people tend to, as I did myself, tend to just try to make a lot out of mindfulness. <clears throat> so you start from there. And then mindfulness would generally comes across as something like quite a strong emphasis on attention to particular bodily sensations, um, uh, to particular refined sensations, uh, to a system or technique that you can get to and do, but it's fairly exclusive. You know, it's generally like you know, other people, the world in general is sort of like you know, I'm doing my mindfulness practice, uh, and uh, so. Yeah, as as becoming people are starting to recognise in in the mindfulness uh, uh, move, movement, mindfulness interest, which you could say is by and large wholesome. There are certain defects that occur when it becomes just another system for sort of sprucing up uh, <laughs> the same old mindset, making it work better. It becomes another commodity, just as, for example, you know, Hatha Yoga, which was supposed to be that which prepares the body for Raja Yoga and for, for Jhana, becomes like a keep fit thing. It becomes purely commodified how to make your body sleek and toned and all kinds of neat, groovy things with your body, like twisted around and stuff, and you can do like a, acrobatics or you get, uh, you get to look nice and trim. Which is really quite a, uh, <laughs> that's not what it was about. <laughs> it's supposed to be to purify the energy so you could enter into deeper meditation, is what yoga was about. See how it kind of it, it gets hived off instead of something that, that covers like karma yoga, raja yoga. Uh, bhakti yoga and um, hatha yoga, it gets divided off into just the keep fit thing, which is better than not keeping fit. But meanwhile, a lot of people's uh, self-image and self-esteem and selfishness isn't really released. And similarly with mindfulness, we can use that mindfulness in business, mindfulness in the army, which, yeah, okay, it could be keep a little bit calmer, but really the path doesn't begin with mindfulness, begins with right view, which is perhaps we shouldn't be milking people for thousands of dollars every day, and perhaps we shouldn't be shooting people 
<laughs> the first priest. <laughs> you know, rather than doing it better or being a bit more calm about it all. <laughs> or focused. <laughs> or being able to discharge the stress. So you can live your kind of stressful life and then discharge the stress. So it's a stress reduction. And, you know, so you know, well, wait a minute, it's not quite, it's a bit more than that, samasati. It means you're really, you know, looking into what your mind is doing and trying to live according to the principle of um, cause and effect and goodwill towards others uh, and, uh, and so on. Until we sense that, then... You know, from a Buddhist point of view, you're not really actually training in line with the realization of, of what the Buddha is talking about. It kind of sidetracks it. So, in other occasions, when the Buddha uh, addressed um, complete newcomers, he would say, well, I teach first of all the principle of dana, generosity, and then sila ethics, and then ethics recognizing as one's mind becomes more open to that. There are certain hazards that we should avoid. So recognizing most people will appreciate generosity is good. You kind of open up the theme of dana, it means sharing, generosity, sharing, and from a Buddhist point of view, this is material resources, it's um, medicines, helping, or anything that helps people to get well. <coughs> Hospitality, afford shelter to people, welcome people in, share my place, room for you. And um, advice, or dhamma. So that's, 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 it means you're really, you know, opening out how... Sharing this is just as good a way of, of translating dharma's generosity, I think. You get the sense of it. Other people, you're concerned for them. And you want to bring forth what you can for their welfare. In fact, the precepts themselves are sometimes regarded as a form of dharma, generosity, because if you keep moral precepts, then you are in fact giving people a feeling of trust. They can rely upon you. What you say will be a gift, rather than a way of manipulating people. So you're giving them the, you're giving them the gift of trust. And you're giving them the gift of security. You're not going to let them down. You're not going to do a number on them. You're not going to betray them. You're not going to badmouth them behind their back and so with that you know you give them the gift of, of true friendship uh, you're not going to violate them take advantage of them abuse them sexually or physically or verbally you give them the gift of fearlessness you're no longer anxious intimidated frightened uh, so in a way you know, sila or morality is not just a sense of puritanical righteousness, so much as that which brings around harmony you know, in ourselves and in our relationships. What is this quality of harmony? Mind is endowed with skillful qualities, and those skillful qualities are being extended you know, other, other, other beings can then appreciate that. Dharma, Sila. So this principle of mutuality uh, is and karma, good karma, is, is the foundation. And that's the keynote 
So even if one's on one's own, then the encouragement is to recollect. You know, to recollect one has lived honestly, reliably, you've not betrayed, you've not broken confidences, uh, you've lived with respect. So the mind is then feels happy rather than furtive or anxious. These qualities, these precepts are to not just be obeyed but to be enjoyed for the, the way the mind can then feel open, free from um, guilt or having to hide aspects of behaviour. And so just this is already a weight off the mind. It's already a burden off the heart. And in such a way, you live in such a way, then you will find yourself naturally associating with people of like temperament. And they, they will seek you out. So you form good friendships. And your life and your livelihood proceed from there. Now, you know, though this is uh, 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 in a way fairly obvious, what we do recognize to a, to a regret is what, why, why is it people don't do this? <laughs> or don't do it that much? Why is it such a angry, hostile world? Why is it so, so much inequality? Greed, hatred. Why is it that some people have got billions, and other people have got just about scraping by? Because this sense of uh, sense contact and what comes into the senses intoxicates. We want a bit more, bigger. mansion rather than a house or a home. Yeah. So, for example, in London you have a, a famous road called Bishop's Avenue, I think. And all the houses along this road, they're all like mansions with walls around them, electric gates, guards, you know, big fences. And the properties there are millions, cost millions. And people don't live in them. They just have as an investment. And this property you know, in a big city like that, uh, just sheerly for the sake of accumulating money. And there's people living on the street, homeless, in the same city. You know, you wonder how, how do people not see this? Because meanwhile, they're somewhere else, enjoying themselves. Very much my, my territory. My investments. You know, I just bought a Picasso for 35 million. <laughs> I can put it in a vault somewhere. You know, it's, it's sickness. Greed. For, for owning uh, and greed for power greed for power this sense of being power over others domination, influence, status uh, this is, is it intoxication occurs with that So the Buddha is saying, well, you know, this is hazardous because this hazardous nature of the sensory domain and of what we could loosely call the egotism of self. Uh, we need to develop, put in place something which is called renunciation. Just stop, check, restraining. Restraining the pull of the senses, 
restraining the I am gratification to be grander, bigger, more sumptuous, more acclaimed. This cancerous quality that takes over the mind, where it's never enough, never enough, more. And people don't really see it because there's a certain glow in that. This is the glow of tanha, craving for sense objects and craving for becoming something, something special. <coughs> Renunciation, just check. Separate desires from needs. Yeah. Follow your desires, they get more. Look at your needs, they get less. <laughs> if you really understand that. And uh, it's also something whereby the more you develop it, you realize, yeah, I don't even need that much. Don't need it. Separating needs. What do you need? Well, you need shelter, food. Medicines, clothing, keep you warm. That's it. In terms of material things, and if we've cultivated these other qualities goodwill, clarity, mutuality. Then we begin to experience what the craving is trying to do to, to give us fulfillment. We're experiencing this through skillful mind states, skillful friendships, warm heartedness, sharing, generosity. We're feeling fulfilled by that. You don't really need that much. You're happy enough. It's good enough. The word enough, quite a simple word, rarely experienced. <laughs> enough, that's enough. I could have, no, that's enough. I'm really making this, this is, you know, realizing that the Buddha doesn't actually say exactly what that means, but the opposite. You find that balance. What's enough for you? What's just feels right? So it's no longer a concern. And therefore, you can put your attention into cultivating what is really boundless, measureless. You know, like the measureless states of goodwill, the profound states of, 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 of calm. And of all the measureless states of wisdom, which releases you from this isolated, trapped ego self experience. And this is what the Buddha fulfilled. Right livelihood. <coughs> you know, we've given this to teaching, first of all, to some ascetics. So they clearly weren't commuting, they weren't plumbers or dentists. So, right livelihood is not really just about a job. Though, for many people, a job would be part of that. But right livelihood really means that um, sense of knowing your material needs, being able to fulfill those in a way that doesn't bring around harm to others, is moral, uh, is not excessively greedy. Uh, and so for the 
for people like these ascetics, then the Buddha was talking about a lifestyle of um, dependence, uh, like mutuality with householders, so that you know, this, this principle whereby <coughs> by living simply, living as an example of harmlessness and goodwill, and clarity, then one is serving society by that. And of course serving oneself. And people will respect it and support it. So in a way then this is the wheel. The individual, each individual offers their skills, their goodwill, their wisdom, and people offer material things and people offer immaterial things. This is how the wheel gets going in social terms. So livelihood is really an important aspect of that. <clears throat> and uh, the Buddha often gave advice to, to uh, businessmen even, saying, you know, the sources of how one should earn a living, make sure that you look after yourself, your kin, your family, and then what you have left over, you just find what, how you can be charitable with that. So a sense of something whereby these skillful states are extended in that way. When, so that kind of principle means that we use that as the foundation of Dhamma practice. This is quite a, uh, a broad scope. broad field of uh, cultivation and clearly the Buddha intended to be that way um, so having first of all taught his, his summoners he went to teach his uh, family so trying to bring it into lay life, into the household life and that's the way he taught both sides to realise he had a teaching that would cover all of it, that's why it's called um, a wheel. Wheel is also in India something that has a vast span to it, covers the entire world. And clearly this was the Buddha's intention and why he established and purified the Samana practices to be those who lived in a way whereby they modelled, they were non-abusive, non-manipulative, lived simply that would support the faith of other people. And so it's kind of, this is what's kept this whole thing going for all this time in this uh, world. <coughs> Therefore there's a celebration of that. Now as we cultivate right, efforts on that basis, any effort that's done in line with these principles is right effort. Any efforts done in line with these middle path, generosity, morality, livelihood, friendship, is called right effort, is called a Dhamma practice. Anything that pushes away wrong livelihood, niggardliness, hostility, jealousy, competitive, um, greediness, is considered right effort. And if one cultivates like this as a, as a uh, daily life thing is going on, then naturally uh, a lot of stress and uh, unskillfulness is eliminated from the mind, so it becomes much easier to settle into a skillful mind state. Uh, and so the meditation is, arises from this right effort. And again, if we don't really understand that, we always think by effort means make a big effort in your meditation to make sure you really concentrate on what you're doing, get focused. But that isn't how the Buddha taught it. 
what he did teach was that effort should be made in terms of cultivating skillful mind states. Uh, and the skillful mind states themselves will act as a natural reservoir where the mind settles into. So meditation begins, in many respects, with recollecting, considering, remembering uh, skillful mind states in yourself and in others and dwelling in it. So the mind is literally uplifted, gladdened and staying in that. And uh, naturally in order to recollect a skillful mind state you have to develop them, (laughs) practice them. Uh, And you do that in the life. And then you've got this this, uh, essential resource. So if you so you don't begin with say focusing on your nostrils or your belly, you begin with focusing on your life. And it's quite a broad focus. So the skillful mind set is there, mind is gladdened, it's refreshed, and then we bring it into how it's affecting our bodies, our bodies can relax. Uh, settle down and ideally as that settles the mind settles with it this is not a narrow pressure it's the constant cultivation of sweeping away what's unskillful or unnecessary irrelevant waste of time lingering in opening to staying a long time with what's skillful, fortunate, and feeling the qualities of that. Mind is bright, body relaxes, discursive thought slows down, because we have something to settle into. Without this basis, people are always in the meditation trying to stop their thinking. calm down and stop thinking. But that, isn't, that again isn't what the Buddha taught. He said you should think. Think slowly and carefully. Recollect. Slowly and carefully. That was not worthy of me. Why was it not worthy of me? I was careless. I was disrespectful. Right. Put it aside. What caused that? Carelessness, habit, old habits, pressure, um, fascination with something or the other, wanting to get what I want, that's what caused it. Put that aside. Clear. And then what caused one to feel happy, relaxed, at ease, comfortable? Dwell in it, linger in it. It's not a matter of just praising oneself, but feeling the results in the heart of having lived one day with a sense of aspiration and and value. You should think these things. Think them slowly. The principle of skillful thinking is you bring up a topic then you linger in it, you dwell upon it, you make much of it, you consider it. And then this process slows thinking down, so you're not just jumping from one topic to another, it slows it down, and you get the quality of what we're thinking about. <clears throat> this itself is a powerful training because by and large people just their mind scamper. One thought, next thought, next thought, next thought, off this, maybe that, and then it could be another thing to scan because it doesn't actually taste the real heart quality of what we're thinking about. So this isn't a profound philosophical analysis we're doing, but just the touching into. So that a day, an hour, a month, uh, an activity, a business, relationships, something you can look at, dwell in, feel, 
Yeah, that, that's, that feels right. Yeah. I didn't push anybody around. I didn't demand it be exactly the way I wanted. I was prepared to listen and share and compromise. And, yeah, that felt better. It felt more holistic, more complete. And I'm glad I could see that. Glad I could see the danger of me getting what I want and not counting, having taken in stock other people's welfare. I could see that and put, it, put that aside. So this really is certainly in Buddha's advice where <clears throat> we begin our meditation. Mindfulness then is something that just stays there with that thing and keeps as two qualities to it, and you might say as a kind of protective quality, in that it doesn't tolerate, it doesn't allow unskillful influences to take over, checks, stays, and it stays on track with something, qualities that are comfortable, brightening, deepening, you know, stays with that, wherever it is. So again, with mindfulness, how does the Buddha define mindfulness? Here one is mindful, one recollects and bears in mind the meaning of teachings given long ago. That's the definition of mindfulness. (laughs) It's not a pinpoint, is it? It's not stuck on the end of your nose, is it? It's not a subtle sensation. It's the ability to sieve, to filter and to extract something worthwhile and stable it, even if it happened 10 years ago. And what was the meaning to be borne in mind of teachings given long ago? It was such things as be careful about senses. It was be respectful to others. It was understand cause and effect. Everything you do is going to have a consequence. Understand this. Any of these. Not that esoteric. Not dogmatic. But just an encouragement to be careful and regard as precious one's responsive system, one's mind, one's heart. And that will protect it from these diseases that it gets caught up with. And stay with it. That's the definition of sati, mindfulness. So in this we're not really mortifying anything, we're not not even adopting religion as such, not a belief system. It's not a promise of heaven. It's not even like an imperative demand, but just an invitation to value one's life. And make it something that's a source of, of skillful pleasure. Uh, that source of skillful pleasure is dwelt in, the mind will shrug off temptations and seductions and corruptions. Because you know the real thing. You know what your life is about. Because when you get to the end of it, the end of the day, or the end of your life, what's it been about? What do you take with you? What do you what's your dying moment? Worrying about your bank account? Oh, what status you have? No, it's going to be what sits in the heart. <coughs> so there's again, there's another 
skillful recollection that we use to sharpen our attention, not on a sensation, but on the fact that we're going to die, and it could happen any day. That sharpens things. But it's not narrowing your focus onto some discrete point in your body, it's about narrowing or focusing your intentions, in a sense of, look, we're living on a sinking ship, for goodness sake. <laughs> it could go down. What's worthwhile? What lives you? Yeah. So you, you live and you, you pass away feeling no regret. You're ready to move through that door wherever it goes. Rather hanging on. What can you take with you? So these are, then, these, are, these are aspects of how we bring around samasati, right, or complete or fulfilled mindfulness. We see the preciousness, the value of our life. We see the, deli- the delicacy of it. We see the fragility of it, the vulnerability of it. And we don't waste our time and energy chasing daydreams and rainbows. Uh, and this essentially was what the Buddha went forth for. I mean, what he was looking at was aging, sickness, and death, and separation from the love. And how could he, his own son, he, he couldn't save him from death and sorrow and pain? His, his family. So, you know, it wasn't like he dumped them all to go off and do his own thing. He went off to find something valuable that he could bring back, which he did, as soon as he had it. Then he called it the deathless. Now, clearly, bodies pass away and die. But when you really get the sense, you hold the word death in mind, that's not really what it means. It means pain, fear, anxiety, loss, degradation, grief, bereavement, psychological agony, confusion, help, helpless, you know, impotent, overwhelmed, you know, where am I going? I don't know. It's this terror and, and uh, grief and that people don't even want to think about it. So when you do cultivate this, you won't have that. Yeah. You cultivate this path, you won't, that won't be happening. You can let the body pass and your mind is unshaken. And from his point of view, what he'd understood was actually, you know, when his body passed, this isn't the end of it, you know. Uh, what one has cultivated or been with in this life, the dominant traits, those energies, those proclivities will then pertain to the arising of a future birth. Which many people may be sceptical of. That's fair enough. But the Buddha certainly wasn't, certainly taught it. And then deathless becomes something that carries a lot of meaning. And the Buddha's own example was when he passed away, in what many people consider pretty miserable circumstances, colic, dysentery, falling apart at the age of 80, lying under a tree somewhere. What was his last actions? Well, apart from his last actions, he was teaching other people, so generosity to his last dying breath, and then apparently those who could witness it said that he went off and enjoyed himself. He did all these jhanas, went up and down. He was obviously having a little party up there. <laughs> well, 
you know, his mind was kind of so powerful he could just rise out and he'd go into these sublime states. And I think he was just doing a lap of honour. You know, like, here we go. <laughs> and then, right, let it all go. You know? So clearly he wasn't bothered. <laughs> By that, <laughs> he wasn't shivering and cowering and broken up. He was actually, you know, rising to something really beautiful and profound. Wow! What about that then? And that's what they call samadhi. And uh, wisdom. So this is our, and clearly, this really is something one can feel a sense of, wow. You know, it, it goes right down to look after your family, be generous, on a fairly basic level. Same theme, same cultivation, same inner strand, runs right the way through to the elimination of fear, terror, and uh, uh, dislocation at the moment of death. It runs right through. So it's a very extensive and accessible, highly accessible path. And it's this path itself is said to be the path itself that eliminates defilements, corruptions, confusions. It's a particular phrase that's used in one of the chants. Um, all the enlightened ones have fulfilled this through seeing in this world, through seeing it actually as it is, and recognizing it's the path that eliminates the defilements. So this seeing it as it is means with fulfilled mindfulness one is aware. This is a thought. This is an unskillful thought. This is a powerful instinct. It's an unskillful instinct. This is a beautiful aspiration. And one of the features that we're encouraging in this process is that by seeing and fully comprehending actually as it is what is eliminated, what is not brought into the picture is an identity. This is where mindfulness, samadhi, wisdom take hold. And they're not trying to prove something, they're just saying, look carefully, you know, although it's so common to identify with every thought that occurs, with every emotion, take it personally, with every feeling and sensation that's happening to me, you don't find it. You know, what thoughts arise from some kind of trigger, stimulation, Skillful ones, they carry their unskillful ones. There's nobody there doing them. They just arise from certain triggers. Emotions arise from some particular perception that triggers them. Having arisen, they affect other things and they pass on. You can't find a person in that. You can take it personally, but that's added. That's an added inference. And that taking things personally itself is not a person. (laughs) It's a habit. And you can contemplate the habit. Also, as just that's that particular habit. It's called a sankara, a volitional tendency. What is experienced is held to be myself. And yet, what kind of self is that? Because 
you know, the skillful, unskillful, there's thoughts, there's sensations, there's feelings, there's moods and emotions. I mean, how can you create all that out of nothing? It's really this process of life and karma and tendencies arising, being triggered and passing. And the highest aim in Buddhist teaching isn't even to be in some super sublime state, although certainly it's good to get the mind comfortable and steady, but it's just a witness constantly to keep bearing witness time and time again to the truth. A thought is a thought. Feeling is a feeling. There's no person there and there's no past there. There's no future there. Just that. And you, through that you begin to study what causes this and what, where does it arise from? And this insight is so um, helpful because basically if you don't cultivate that the mind gets extremely congested with self-doubt intimidation uh, grudges uh, guilt ambitions gets very clogged up and certainly this is pertinent in this day and age where you can realise recognise although in many ways we are well you know we say we live longer uh, all kinds of conveniences and yet the level of greed, hatred and illusion has not diminished <laughs> and uh, sense of satisfaction and contentment isn't very great uh, and the amount of mental disease anxiety depression people taking medication uh, substances to try and counteract what they're feeling, distractions, huge. Uh, Psychopaths, terrorists, killers, uh, breakdowns, nervous breakdowns, people going crazy. Biggest source of life depletion is psychological, not physical. And why is that? Because of the materialist myth, get more, get more stuff, have more, be something, you'll be better off for it. And it doesn't work. Hate somebody, blame somebody, get rid of the bad people, cut people off, that'll be better. You'll be safe then doesn't work. What is it? How many billions and billions of dollars and pounds spent on military security measures they call it? Military world a safer place? Nope. <laughs> doesn't cure it, does it? <coughs> However you kind of varnish hatred to look call it defence. <laughs> Defence policy is bomb the hell out of somebody else. <laughs> kind of veneer one puts upon it is basically uh, you say there's an absence of goodwill <laughs> and mutual respect, and then naturally, yeah. So it doesn't work, and results of fear, distraction selfishness and psychological damage 
because the basic message so basic it's almost it's not even really Buddhist be generous, share, cooperate be reliable be somebody who will speak the truth you know, it doesn't hurt stop manipulating stop bullying people be a bit more compassionate live more simply you know, you don't need that much it's impossible this planet cannot support a total population of 7 billion it cannot hasn't have the resources to support 7 billion people at the standard of healthy people, middle, even middle class people. It's got to go down. We've got to live a little more simply. And it needn't be miserable. You know? And then there's an absence of the craze to get more and the consumption and the consumerism. And then there's a stilling of the jealousy and resentment and equality. Or to get more peaceful. And so this isn't just something we have to police, but if we really get the principle of that in ourselves, then this could be for the wealth of others, for our own welfare. You live it, you practice it. It's, uh, and then you can, from that basis, in your own way, you can harness, temper, bring all that into completion in your own body and mind to these bright, fruitful, harmonious, transcendent states. So as we begin our rains retreat here, yeah, it's uh, it's the this asala is considered to be the beginning of what we call the rains retreat, beginning here. This is the broad statement, and within that we will um, take stock, um, push the pause button as we begin our. our Begin with a monastic retreat, just check in what's happening, put some of the business aside, what's really going on in here. How can I purify, clarify that in terms of my behavioural training, in terms of my meditation training, so that this life is really going somewhere useful, rather than it's a profitable will, rather than an obsessive, vicious circle. This is the wheel, the great wheel of the Dhamma. So let's make turn for you in your own life, in your own way. You won't. Andamayam Dhamma Ovadikata Sadurkaranda Dhamma Se Sadurkaranda Dhamma Se